Good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. If you haven't met me before, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, excited to be with you this morning as we continue almost drawing our sermon series in 1 Corinthians to an end. Um, last week, we were in the beginning of chapter 15, and Grant asked us this question as we looked at the first a uh, couple of verses of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, what do you believe about Jesus? That was his challenge to us as we looked at those verses. What do you believe about Jesus? And if you believe that about Jesus, what will you do about it? What are you going to do about it? This morning, we're going to ask a slightly different question. This morning, we're going to ask, what do you believe about the resurrection? And as Paul goes on into this section of 1 Corinthians... He, he begins to speak about the resurrection of Christians because in the Corinthian church, there was this growing aversion to deny the bodily resurrection of believers. They all agreed that Jesus rose from the dead, but they didn't like the idea of a general bodily resurrection of believers. And they had two issues with that. The one was what theologians call an over-realized eschatology. Right, which is a real complicated way of saying that the Corinthian church felt like they had already inherited and received the fullness of God's promise for eternity in their current life. And so they thought it was already as good as it got, that they were already in the fullness of the spirit of life of God, and that there wasn't anything else to come, so the body was bad, and so the body needed to disappear. That was, that was one of their problems. The other problem was that they had a very Greek understanding of the resurrection. And so they saw and thought about the bodily resurrection of believers as corpses being reanimated from the grave. Right? Which is bad enough if you've got corpses that are buried in a graveyard. It becomes quite awkward when you've been cremated. Right? Anyway. That was their issue. And so Paul writes into the situation to the church. And his goal is not yet to convince unbelievers that the resurrection happened. His goal is to convince believers that because the resurrection happened, there is a real and bodily resurrection for us as Christians as well. We won't just be some kind of disembodied spirit floating around in some ethereal space. But we will be people with bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. So today we're going to look at six critical consequences of the resurrection and what it means for us as believers today. And I want to summarize all of those six things in one word. Anyone want to guess what that word is? word is hope. All right, the resurrection gives us hope. It, hope is something that we cherish with a desire and an anticipation of it becoming real. And it's because of the resurrection that we have hope. Paul said to the Roman church, he wrote to them, he said, guys, I want you to know that hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We can hope in many things in this world. Some of those things will let us down. But if you place your hope in Jesus and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you will not be disappointed. That's what Paul wants us to know. It's what God wants us to live in light of. And so we're going to explore the last half of 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to look at these six important consequences of the resurrection, six aspects of our hope. And apparently the team thought I did a good job when they gave me 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 to do together, which was 45 verses in total. This morning we have 46 verses just in chapter 15. 
But we're not going to get as technical as we did in chapters 8 and 10. We're going to be a little bit lighter. We're going to pick up and draw out of these this section of Scripture just what we need to apply to ourselves today and what the resurrection now means for us as Christians. And we're going to pick up Paul's argument from verse 20 because in from verses 12 to 19, Paul does this argumentative strategy where he says, all right, Corinthians, you believe that there's no bodily resurrection. Well, let's suppose that you're right. Let me show you how dumb you are. That's basically what he does. He draws their argument out and shows them the stupidity of the consequences if there was no resurrection. right? And so then he says, now that you realize that your position was bad, let me show you what's really going on. And so we're going to pick up from there in verse 20. So here's the first consequence for us, the first thing to take away about the resurrection of Christ. The first is this, in Christ the curse of Adam is overcome. Paul writes, from verse 20, he says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. The first reason we can and should have hope in the resurrection is because it is the promise of the final reversal of the curse under which we all live. If you've been in church for a little while, you might have read the first three chapters of your Bible, right? In chapter 3 of Genesis, God curses man, he curses woman, and he curses the earth in which we all live. And because of that curse, death, decay, and sin that were previously unknown in creation have now become central to the ecosystems of our life. Everything in life revolves around the cycle of life, death, and rebirth. That curse has ruled and governed the life of all human beings from the very beginning till now. There is not a single person who has escaped its scope because one man sinned, judgment came to all creation, and death reigned as the final barrier for each one of us. But now in Christ, that final barrier has been removed. In Christ, all will be made alive. He is the first fruits. In other words, he is the proof that the resurrection is real and true for those who belong to Christ. It's not just an empty promise. This image of first fruits, it comes from the Old Testament. What would happen is you would have a crop, you would harvest that crop, and the first fruit that you harvested from that crop, you would take to the temple and give as an offering to God. What's important for us to recognize out of that is, for us, Christ is the first fruit. He is the first portion of the harvest of the resurrection. In other words, we are a part of the same harvest that Christ has already come from. So if Christ has already been raised from the dead to new life, the fact of his resurrection is the guarantee that we will also rise again to new life. Do you see that? Because we're part of the same harvest with him. I love this promise of God. You just see the goodness of his grace in this. You know, Adam sinned, and we, and we all paid the price. And that feels sometimes a little unfair, right? You're like, it would have been nice to have a clean slate and maybe, like, do it myself. And Adam, he didn't do very well. You know, if you had to look, God told him a whole bunch of stuff, and he said, Adam, there's one thing that you can't do. Just, just the one thing, don't do that. What does he do? He does that. Right? And you kind of think, man, maybe I would have done slightly better if I was put in Adam's shoes. But I'm really grateful that, that I wasn't put in Adam's shoes because Adam didn't just have the one hurdle to cross. He had to live a whole life that was without sin. And I don't think any one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, would manage to live an entire life and never sin. 
And so because Adam sinned, all of creation carries the curse of God. All of creation becomes fallen. And God knew that would happen. And because God is just, he cannot abide sin, nor can he let it go unpunished. But just as sin was universally applied to everyone in all creation, God has made the reversal equally available to all. An immeasurable treasure that we can never attain by ourselves, but it is the gift of God in Christ Jesus to us. God gives it freely through Christ, the second Adam, who comes to reverse what Adam did. The first consequence of the resurrection is that in Christ there is the guarantee of new life for all who will receive Jesus. And that is exciting stuff. The second is this. The end will come. It has already been inaugurated. See, Paul carries on from verse 24 and he says, Then, when that has happened, the end will come. When he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom of God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion and all authority and all power, for he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. And now when it says everything has been put under his feet, it's clear that it does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. But when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. It's a little bit technical in the second half there. Here's what I want you to to realize. Because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, we who are in Christ will also rise again to new life. And when we do that, it will trigger the end of the world. Armageddon will come. The day of judgment that God has been holding back will finally come and this world will be consumed by fire. And God will judge the living and the dead and he will make a new heaven and a new earth and those who are his will live with him forever. That is the promise and that promise is sure because the resurrection of Jesus has already triggered it. It has already set it in motion. The final age has now begun. So we really are living in what can truly be called the last days. Now, Peter says that a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. So it, we, it may not end tomorrow. Right? No one knows exactly when that day will come. But it will come. It will come. It is inescapable because it has been set in motion. There is no age that will follow this one. And there's certainly enough going on around us for us to suspect that there are some threads that are being drawn together as we look around the world. I know I've spoken to many of you at this church about the end. right? And that you share my concern that as a church, we need to look and we need to see, we need to read the signs, and we need to be ready. Ready for that moment when our Savior returns. So it anticipates the question, well, what does it mean to be ready? And there are varying ideas and solutions out there depending on how you think the world is going to come. I'm not going to sit here and tell you this morning that you need to take your money out of the bank and hide it under your mattress because the banks are going to just fall apart. They may. I don't know. I don't know that. What, here's what I know. Jesus told his disciples a story and he said there are, there are ten virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom to come. And they don't know when he's going to come. So each of those young ladies had a lamp and they had some oil. And some of them thought, well, the bridegroom may take some time, and so they gathered some extra oil. And true enough, the bridegroom took a long time in coming. It's now 2,020-odd years after Jesus made that promise. 
Right? The bridegroom may have taken some time to get you, but his, his call was you need to be ready. And so when he came, five of them had extra oil and their lamps were still alight. And the other five said, hey, give us some oil because we'd also like to have some oil. And they said, no, listen, we don't have enough for you and us. Go get your own. And off they went. And then the bridegroom returned. And they missed out. What does it mean to be ready? It means that we, are, we live for the sake of the kingdom. It means we live to to extend the mission of Jesus, to continue his work. Because the only reason the end hasn't come yet is because there are still some who are outside the kingdom that need to come in. That's why we're still here. And so if we're going to be ready for this moment that Jesus has set in motion, it means that we live for the things of the kingdom. It means we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then the things that we want and desire, God will give us as we need them but we exist for his sake and for his kingdom. The resurrection of Christ gives us hope because it guarantees that the end will come, that we will one day see an end to all the sinfulness and the pain and the heartache and the dysfunction that we see around us. We don't need to look far to see that in our world today. We saw there was more looting that was going on. Half of Dam has been destroyed. We had taxi strikes not long ago. It's on the verge of happening again. There's so much brokenness and challenge and pain that exists in our world. But the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead guarantees that God is going to draw that to an end and that there will be an age where none of that exists. And that's our future in Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Right, that's consequence number two. Here's number three. The resurrection gives us the confidence to endure today and to live for the future. Paul writes from verse 30, he says, Why should we ourselves risk our lives hour by hour? For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, that I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride in what Christ Jesus our Lord has done in you. See, if it was from human motives that I fought with wild beasts, those people of Ephesus, what good is that to me if there is no resurrection from the dead? And if there is no resurrection, let's feast, let's drink, because tomorrow we're going to die. Don't be fooled by those who say such things. For bad company corrupts good character. Think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. For to your shame, I say that some of you don't know God at all. See, in this section, Paul, he segues and he begins to argue briefly from his own life. And in a nutshell, he says this. He says, guys, sometimes life is just really hard. Sometimes life is actually, it's horrible. And honestly, if it weren't for the resurrection, if it weren't for the future, I would throw in the towel. And I would just give up. And as I was preparing and putting this message together, I just felt, I felt a prompting from the Spirit to not move past this moment and treat it lightly. Because I know that there are some of you who are sitting here today, and that is the way life looks at the moment. Some of you may have been through that and have come out the other side. Some of you might be sitting in that at the moment. And as you look, and it just feels like the tunnel is dark, and you can't see the light at the end, and you want to hold on to hope, but there are so many things that just seem to be pulling you back and dragging you down and making it hard to get from one day to the next. And sometimes you wonder, should I just throw in the towel and give up? And because we're a family... I would love for us to minister to one another this morning. Because we walk this journey together. 
Because we love one another. We bear one another's burdens. We come alongside each other when life is hard. And so I would like to ask, and I'm going to give some instruction in a moment, but if you are in that space this morning, would you be brave enough to raise your hand? Are there some people here that would just love brothers and sisters? Okay, see those hands. Thank you. Right, so in a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to gather around one another. Right? And I know that's a very brave and a very vulnerable thing, so I want to protect you in a couple of ways. This is not a space to pry. Okay, This is not a space to ask questions, say what's going on. If they know you and trust you, they may choose to share with you, and that's, that's up to them. But we're going to gather around one another, and, and we're going to pray for one another. And so we're going to get up and move. Right? Is that okay? We can do that. Right? Your seat doesn't have glue on it. So you can just, we, when they say, come, gather around, we're going to pray. Let's, we're all going to pray. Some of you will be able to be close. Some of you won't be able to be close. Right, Trevor's going to come. He's going to tinkle on the keys for us, make a grace, gracious noise to the Lord in the background. But we're just going to pray that God would come and meet our brothers and sisters at their point of need. In this place that is dark, where it's not always easy to see the other side, where we just need Jesus to come and to meet us in the middle of the heartache and to give us strength and hope. So those of you who raised your hand, or if you weren't brave enough to do that, but you want to do it now, won't you stand for us? If you see some people standing, won't you gather around them? All right, let's just move. Gather around those people. And let's love them together this morning, right? Let's love our brothers and sisters. Some guys up top that need some brothers to gather around as well. I'm just going to allow you to pray. So just pray. I'm going to be quiet for a couple of minutes. Thank you, Lord.
even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We do not fear evil because our God is with us. His rod and staff are there to comfort us. And even in the presence of our enemies, you prepare a table before us, Jesus. You provide for us in the midst of the greatest challenge. You are there. You never leave us. You never forsake us. And so, Lord, this morning together we contend for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. We contend for the breaking in of heaven and the power of the kingdom of God to come and be ministered into the lives of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We pray and we contend. We ask, Lord Jesus, won't you pour out from heaven the, the strength that comes from the Spirit? Won't you release the love of the Father? Won't you banish despair and hopelessness in Jesus' name? And may light enter into the tunnel again. May hope enter into the darkness. Because we serve a living and risen God who has conquered death, sin, and the grave. So in Jesus' name, Lord, we commit these moments, these situations, our brothers and sisters, to you. And we pray that your kingdom come into their lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone. It's a blessing to be a family together. We walk this road as God gives us grace together with one another. Because sometimes living for God means living sacrificially. Sometimes it means denying yourself. It means giving away. It means spending yourself on behalf of others. It means making a stand for God where others attack you. Sometimes we can really feel the weight of those choices. And without the resurrection, there is a very real temptation to throw in the towel, to give up. Sometimes on life, sometimes on God. And that temptation can intensify when we surround ourselves with people that don't point us back to God, which is why God has given us a family. Paul says, be careful. Be careful who you share with. Allow brothers and sisters to come alongside and to walk with you and strengthen you as you follow Jesus. It's because of the resurrection, friends, that we have hope to endure. Because the resurrection has secured for us a future after this one, the sacrifices that you make in this life are worth it. Because they will be repaid eternally. It's like an RA that never runs out. The return on investment of following Jesus is infinite. Because you reap those rewards for an eternity that has been secured for you by the resurrection of Jesus. So Lord, strengthen us, we pray. And give us grace to continue to follow you and live for you in all that we do. Consequence number four. Paul writes, and he now swings a little bit. He says, the resurrection foreshadows and guarantees our bodily resurrection. We read from verse 42. It says, it is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. 
They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as they are natural bodies, they are also spiritual bodies. See, in this section of chapter 15, Paul begins to pick up the question of how. How will the resurrection happen? What will it be like? And the reason Paul does this is because the Corinthians have made a mistake, and honestly, it's a mistake that we sometimes make. Because they had not understood the how, you know, they were concerned about the reanimation of corpses, they had then chosen to reject the what. And this, this is not a main point in my sermon, but it is worthy of just noting, right, as a sidebar. There's a warning there for us. Sometimes when we don't understand how something works, it's easier to just say, well, it probably doesn't exist, than to embrace the reality that actually it can still be true and we just don't understand it. There's a thing that um, I think it's psychology calls cognitive dissonance, and those who are psychologists can correct me if I'm wrong. But cognitive dissonance is the idea of being able to hold two seemingly contradictory ideas together in your mind, and you can't quite resolve the tensions that exist between the two, but both of them can coexist and both be true at the same time. And then sometimes we have to be able to do that, which is what Paul is trying to help the Corinthians do. So in this section, Paul wants them to know that the resurrection we will experience will be a resurrection of our bodies as well as our spirits. In the new creation that is to come, we are not just disembodied spirits, but we will have spiritual or supernatural bodies that God has given to us. And the section that we didn't read that came just before this, Paul uses three analogies to kind of make this point. And he starts off talking about seeds. Seeds, he says, represent our current flesh and blood bodies, and seeds are planted in the ground, which is a metaphor for death. And after a seed has been planted in the ground, new life arises from that seed, and it looks different to the seed. Right? So I plant a sunflower seed in the ground, and it's, you know, yay big, and it looks like a tear, and then out of it comes a sunflower. Plant whose form has been given to it by God. And he says, in this way, our new bodies are going to be given to us by God in the form that he chooses, and they're going to look different to the seed that was planted. And then he illustrates this by talking about animals. And he says, you guys understand that the flesh of your own bodies is different to the meat that you find in animals, and that that is also different to the meat that you find in birds, and that is equally different to the meat that you find in fish. So you understand that there can be different kinds of meat. Well, in the same way, there are now different kinds of bodies. And God will choose what form they will have. And then he takes a third analogy and he's, he shifts things from talking about things that exist on the earth to things that exist in the heavens. And it's a metaphorical shift that moves us from fleshly bodies to spiritual, supernatural bodies. He says, look at the sun, the moon, and the stars. Each of them has a glory, a radiance that is unique and different from each of the others because God has given it to them. And God will do that with the new bodies that he gives to us that are supernatural, that are spiritual, and they will have a glory, a radiance that comes from God. So in this way, the bodies that we now have, which are broken and weak and natural, and in my tender age of 37, I've begun to realize that my body is more frequently broken and weaker than it used to be when I was younger. And those of you who have journeyed further and longer in life will know that that seems to continue to become the case. Amen, Amen right? <laughs> well, praise the Lord, we will get new bodies, right? We can finally run that marathon. And actually make it to the end. We will be raised as new supernatural bodies that are glorious and strong and spiritual. The resurrection guarantees that we will have new wonderful bodies. Bodies that are glorious, strong and spiritual. 
Consequence number five. The resurrection secures a bodily transformation. Read in verses 50 to 53. Paul says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I'll tell you a mystery. We will all, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, the mortal with immortality. The fifth consequence of the resurrection is that our bodies will be transformed. They will be changed. There is a fundamental difference between our life now and the eternity that we inherit. This life is subject to decay and ultimately to death, but eternity is not. And so to enter into that eternity, we must be changed. Just as Jesus was, we must receive a new body from God. And if you remember your readings of the gospel, Jesus' new body was a little bit interesting. He could do some things that his old body couldn't. Like walk through walls and doors. That was, that was pretty cool. But he still ate, which is kind of interesting. Right? I'm a little sad that he ate fish. Because I don't really like fish. It would have been so much more lucky if he had had a steak bry on the side of the Sea of Galilee, right? Unfortunately, Jesus likes fish. What can you do? Maybe I should like fish too. There will come a day, Paul says, when God will do this for us in a moment. And it is the day Scripture refers to as the great and terrible day of the Lord. The day when God will finally blow the last trumpet. That clarion call that signals that this age has come to an end. The moment when God now draws all things to himself. When this world will be wrapped up. When the scales will be balanced. The scores will be tallied. And judgment will be levied. It is the great and terrible day of the Lord. It is the day that none can escape. Whether living or dead. And on that day, as the trumpet is played, the dead in Christ will be raised. And together with those Christians who are alive when Christ comes, they will be given new bodies. And the perishable bodies will be changed to become imperishable. And our mortal bodies will be changed to become immortal. And we will then be able to receive the inheritance that God has prepared for us in Christ. And that is really exciting. Right? That excites me. And it leads us to this final climactic conclusion that Paul draws this chapter to a close with. And he says this, consequence number six, the resurrection defeats death once and for all. Amen? Amen. See, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gave us the victory. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. Herein lies the greatest consequence of the resurrection. That transformation where our perishable, decaying bodies will be clothed in imperishable immortality is the moment that death itself is overcome. Where the curse of Genesis 3 is finally and fully reversed and the final frontier before all life is dismantled. For since the fall, sin has led to death. And since the law, sin has found an opportunity to tempt us away from God. 
But in the resurrection of the righteous, sin will have no place. And our new bodies will not be subject to its degradation any longer. There's a reason we read this passage so frequently at funerals and memorials. Because it proclaims in such triumphant fashion the hope and the victory that is ours in Christ. Because of his resurrection from the dead. One of the commentators that I read as I prepared this message, Gordon Fee, he says this. I just loved his words. He said, but here too, it is a word for all seasons. Our present existence in Christ and our present labors are not in vain. Standing beneath them is the sure word of Christ's own triumph over death, which guarantees that we shall likewise conquer. Victory in the present begins when one can, with Paul, sing the taunt of death even now, in light of Christ's resurrection, knowing that death's doom is already, but not yet. Because death could not hold its prey, Jesus our Savior, neither will it be able to hold its further prey when the final eschatological trumpet is blown that summons the Christian dead unto the resurrection and immortality. What a hope is this. No wonder Paul concluded on a note of exhortation that we may confidently continue on our way in the Lord. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Stand firm. Let nothing move us. Let us give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord because we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. And there will come a day when that investment pays out. I'm going to ask the team to come and join me on stage. I'm going to close for us in prayer. And then we're going to, we're going to sing that first song, I Believe Again, as a declaration of victory, as a declaration of what we believe because of what Jesus has done for us. But then we're going to close, and, and I want, would love to invite any of you who would love someone to journey with you because you're in a hard space at the moment. We don't want to let that just be a moment that gets lost. If you want someone to journey with you, the elders, the pastors are available. We are so willing to walk with you. Maybe you had a friend who was alongside you praying, and you want to share more with them. You're welcome to do that. Maybe some of you will be here this morning and you're hearing about the good news and the promise that is yours in Jesus, and you would like to begin exploring a journey with Jesus. We would love to talk to you and invite you into that. But let's pray, and then let's sing of the goodness of our God. Lord, we thank you so much this morning for the resurrection of Jesus over the grave. We thank you that you have finally inaugurated and conquered death once for all time, that the, the end is sure, that the change will come, that there is a future that has been secured for us that will never be revoked. We bless you for that, Lord. And we pray, God, as we live in the here and now, in the world that is still to be consumed, we pray, Lord, that you give us grace to stand firm, to continue to give all that we have for your name's sake and for your kingdom, to live for the, the kingdom of the living God in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection that is ours in Jesus. Thank you, God.